This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Welcome to the Carbon Connection Podcast. It's not too late to change the conversation about climate change from doom and gloom to a conversation about possibility. This podcast is a curated selection of episodes that we just had to share with you. The Carbon Connection is about the many dimensions of climate change and the conversations people are having across the globe. It's about hope, community, advocacy, science, and changing our future. Hi, it's Tanya. I am a contributor to the Carbon Almanac Network. I also have the opportunity to work on the podcast team where several of us produce The Carbon Connection. On occasion, we will share an episode from one of our other podcasts. The first episode that we will share with you comes from the podcast The Carbon Almanac Collective. The Carbon Almanac Collective features conversations with some of the people who helped write the book. Today, we listen to not only the show that launched the podcast network, but we also get to drop in on a conversation between three people who are key to the launch of the book and the podcast network. Today, we get to learn from Seth Godin, founding editor of The Carbon Almanac. We also get to learn from Nikki Papadopoulos, editor-in-chief of Portfolio, the imprint of Penguin Random House, who published the book. And we also get to learn from Jennifer Meyer-Schwa, the founder of the Carbon Almanac Podcast Network. In this episode, we learn how Seth Godin put an idea into action, how he created a network of contributors, and how he and Nikki worked together to build the Carbon Almanac. I hope you enjoy this rebroadcast of the Carbon Almanac Collective. What happens when regular people work together to create massive, meaningful change on a global scale? Welcome to the Carbon Almanac Collective, a podcast where the volunteers who created the Carbon Almanac share the insights and aha moments they had while collaborating on this landmark project to help fight the climate crisis. I'm your host, Jennifer Myers-Chua, and it's not too late to join in on the conversation. I'm Seth Godin. I live outside of New York City on the Hudson River, and I am the organizer and founder of the Carbon Almanac. My name is Nikki Papadopoulos. I am the editor-in-chief of Portfolio, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. I've been in New York for the past 15 years, so culturally I consider myself a New Yorker. And my role in the Carbon Almanac is a super special one and one that I feel very privileged to have, which is that I am the liaison to the book publisher. I am the person inside of Penguin Random House who Seth talks to about the book. And so when things need to happen with the book, I'm the first point of contact. And then I try to make things happen inside a very large, complex organization. I was on the original invitation list to be a contributor to the Carbon Almanac. And I remember where I was when I got that email because I looked at it and I looked at it 
And all, I just wanted to say yes so badly. And I said, and I thought to myself, if I join this, it will take over my life and I will not be able to do very much else and other things will suffer because of it, because I will sort of go insane about it. And so I wrote a, a very tortured decline to Seth and then was thrilled to find out that they wanted to publish the book. And so I would get to work on it in a professional capacity, which I'm allowed to do and, and I'm encouraged to do with my time. And so I just feel really lucky to be involved. So I'm going to jump right in here and say, I've heard you say before that if you were going to make a book, there has to be a reason. I'd like to know, we all want to know, what was your reason to create the Carbon Almanac? I reminded myself that I needed to stop stalling and to show up and do work where I could contribute something that most other people couldn't contribute. Because it's rare that we face an existential crisis where we can A, do something about it, and B, actually have leverage. And my background in making books and the benefit of the doubt that some people had given me gave me a chance to show up. And I realized that time was short and that maybe I knew people who knew people who could come together to make a difference. And if I didn't do that, that would be on me. And so I decided to lean into this fully, full time, because it's that important. But why now? Why not two years from now? Why not five years from now? Why not 10 years ago? Why did we do this now? Well, 10 years ago was the right answer, but I missed it. And 10 years ago, I'm not sure we had the community or the technology in place to be able to do this the way we have. That part of what I've learned in 30 years of looking at culture is that the culture does things when the culture is ready. And it took too long for gay people to have the right to marry. It took too long for us to finally begin undoing the caste system that treats so many people so poorly. And it took too long for us to take action on climate. But the fact that other people are also interested in this is a symptom that we're ready. So what came first here? Was it the idea of creating a community to take on this massive task? Or was it the book? Which of those two ideas came first? The book came first. Because uh, when I see a problem, I instantly reach for, is there a blog post or a podcast or a book that's going to help here? And But then, because I've made almanacs in the past, I know what they entail. I realized that making an almanac by myself was probably outside of my um, resources, but also something that wouldn't achieve our goal, which is how do we do this together? Because the Almanac Project is supposed to be a metaphor for how the community can come together to solve the problem itself. I was wondering why you chose to use an Almanac over using a kid's book, over using a regular nonfiction. Like, why did we choose Almanac? What, is, what was the idea behind that? Okay, so here's some deep cuts. In the 1940s, two of the most uh, popular books in the United States and North America, actually, were the World Almanac and the Information Please Almanac. Between them, they are two of the best-selling books in the history of humanity. Millions and millions and millions of copies sold. The Information Please Almanac was also associated with a game show that was on the radio and then on television called Information Please, and it was adjacent to the giant quiz show scandal of the 1950s. And so it sort of faded away, 
and the World Almanac stepped into the stage. Well, before the internet came along, in the 1980s, when you weren't even born yet. <laughs> I was born. <laughs> I was a book packager. My idea, my job was to think of ideas and make them. The more complicated, the better, because not too many people could do really complicated books. So I invented a book called The Information Please Business Almanac, which was a nod to the Information Please Almanacs of the 40s, but also before the internet, it was the internet in book form. 750 pages of facts and tables and figures and really useful stuff. And it sold really well. We did years of it in a row. That led to the Women's Almanac. It led to the Celebrity Almanac, which I'm not so proud of, with People Magazine. And I know how to make almanacs. Not many people know how to make almanacs. And when I thought about the climate problem we have, what I know is lots of things cause culture change. But one of them is a shared understanding of the truth. And certain issues are so simple you can put it on one sheet of paper. But this one has spiraled out of control in complexity. And so the opportunity was to say to people who like understanding, here's not one person's narrative, but here it is. All the foundational stuff, you can look it up. And now you'll have the confidence to talk about it. When Seth came to you with the idea to create this book, as someone who works in publishing, what were your initial thoughts and how did he describe the project to you? The unique thing about this book is that the process by which it came into the world is the thing that it seeks to teach to the readers. And that does not exist. And um, when I heard about this as a publisher, I mean, first of all, I'm always interested in hearing about anything Seth is working on. But I also saw an opportunity to have a book that was a community effort in the same way that our efforts to combat climate change need to be a community effort. And, and this idea that any one person could own the solution to climate change is ludicrous. Just like the, the idea that any one person's actions can fix climate change is ludicrous. And so I, I really love the the this, this sort of alignment between what the book was and the message of the book and also how it was coming into the world. So you have relationships established with authors from all over the world, people who have created lots of impactful books before. Why did you choose to go to the community at large, really, rather than, you know, co-authoring books with people that you already knew? Um. Like most authors, I'm just a little bit mentally uh, off. <laughs> and one of the things that authors tend to have in common, which our friend Nikki can probably testify to, is that most of the time we prefer to be in a room by ourselves. And we don't necessarily play well with others when it's time to do our work. That is why you write a book instead of making a movie. And I've done a book with 32 other authors called uh, The Big Moo, which raised over a quarter of a million dollars for charity. I did another book with Michael Bungay-Stanier with 30 authors that raised more than a quarter of a million dollars for charity. I know how to do that. It's not as engaging, nor does it create as powerful a product as when you work with people who want to work with each other. And that has been the joy of this almanac. So can you give us a little bit more of the backstory to coming up with the idea and forming it into an actual project? So 
people don't believe this, but all of the stuff I'm talking about takes about two hours. So at like 9.30 in the morning, it's, I really should do something about this. And 10 o'clock in the morning, it's, it should be an almanac. And 10.30 in the morning, it's, this is probably what it's going to be called. And 11 o'clock in the morning, it's going to be in discourse. And at 11.30, the domains are registered. And at noon, I've started to build the discourse page because I have tools and I know how to use tools. And once I decided, I didn't have to have a lot of meetings about it because I knew what it was going to feel like. There was a giant question mark as to whether anyone else would get the joke. But I am not exaggerating when I say that in less than 24 hours from me deciding to do this, the discourse was up and running and I had invited Louise and a couple other people to join me. That was going to be my next question, where who are the first people that you called and what was their response like? So one of the things to learn about working in this format is you have to have resilience built in because most people either don't get the joke or if they do get the joke, can't persistently show up as full-time volunteers. And so you don't say like in the Mission Impossible movies, here are the four people going on the mission and that's all I got. You say, who are the people I'm in sync with who may or may not want to dance here? And I met Louise through the Akimbo workshops and she had really grown and contributed a lot there. I had met Barrett through the Domino Project and he was a reliable, thoughtful person. Then I reached out to some people like Michael Bungay-Stanier and David Meerman-Scott, anyone with a middle name that I could think of to say, you know how to make books, why don't you chip it? And then right at the beginning of this, it was also the question of what would it look like? And so one of the only people who ever got paid to work on this project was a freelancer I found in Nigeria. I think she's in Nigeria. And I paid her, you know, a hundred dollars to build four pages. So she was also one of the first people inside the community. But again, the point was to just try it out because what's the worst that could happen is we'd stop. So something that we've come across in almost every single episode of this podcast was that everyone who joined originally felt like they were making a lot of efforts through recycling or eating less meat. We were all doing things that we thought were helpful until we got here. <laughs> Do you remember when that realization of what you're doing in your personal life and the impact it has? Do you remember when that realization happened for you? Um, there were two parts to it. Uh, the first part is probably about five years ago, I realized what a fraud plastic recycling was. And that made me start to think deeply about lots of the other elements we're talking about. I've been a vegetarian for more than 30 years. So my identity is so tied up in trying to be light on my feet that that didn't change anything, but it did open my eyes. But then when I read Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future, in which he so eloquently laid out the systemic problems, that's when it was just completely clear to me that if we don't find a systemic solution, it's all a waste. It's interesting that you bring up that book because Jasper had recommended it to me and I had to stop reading it because it was giving me some serious nightmares and made me really uncomfortable. And I know that feeling of being uncomfortable is what we need in order to push through and create change. But I had to stop. How are we going to get people to feel uncomfortable enough to take action 
but not be so scared that they close the book and walk away. Yeah. Okay. So it's almost impossible to cause culture change with nothing but gloom and doom and negative information. And culture changes because of two reasons, affiliation and dominance. Affiliation is what are other people doing? And dominance is how do I win? And so you can say to kids all you want, don't go in the lake until 30 minutes after eating, but they're not going to listen to you unless all the other kids aren't going in the lake and then they're going to listen to you. And so the opportunity here is A, to be able to say to people who like to build things, this is a really good way for you to increase your social status and maybe even make some money by building something in the face of this revolution. And number two, from an affiliation point of view, be able to say, you're being left behind and you're being left out because all the other people in the circle are talking about this, doing something about this, registering to vote about this, speaking up about this. Not because the asteroid is going to hit the earth, but because we are doing this together. And that shift is happening right here and right now. Along the way, people who don't want the shift to happen are saying, no, 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 just eat a veggie burger. But I think that there's a whole generation of people who are coming up who are smarter than that. Do you have anything to comment on that idea of whenever you realize that you can't just recycle your way out of the problem and then that this requires bigger action than just what we're doing at home? It was a very gradual aha moment, if that's possible, of realizing um, that the avenue to change wasn't in any small thing that we can do because so much of our world is controlled by these larger policies and larger organizations that make these decisions that impact, you know, 90 or 95% of, of the carbon output. And I remember the, the thing that Seth said to me that really sort of struck a note was, was the idea that of, uh, of the Ogilvy memo. There's the Exxon memo and the, and the Ogilvy client relationship with British Petroleum with carbon footprint. So in 1982, uh, scientists at Exxon wrote a multi-page memo in which they described the future to a tenth of a degree that we are living in today. And they talked about how it was going to happen because of the systems that were in place largely because we've built industries on top of extracting carbon from the ground. I think the idea that that this was this was something that these companies knew about and that they had decided had to be actively combated against in the form of marketing and that the marketing would then take the form of convincing people not convincing people that this wasn't going to happen but convincing them that that it was and it was their individual fault that it didn't have anything to do with these oil companies or what they were doing, look away from them. It's you. It's your fault. It's because you had a burger today. It's because you used a plastic container. And so when all of this goes away, it will be your fault. And and that is a very clever technique for deflecting responsibility. And the I think that understanding that that is what had happened, that, that was kind of a, a real awakening for me. More and more, we are marginalizing books as a source of information. And that's a shame because you can make a YouTube video in three minutes, but a book takes a year of your life. And books 
bring with them a level of intellectual authority that should not be minimized because such care goes into it that you don't write a book just to get a click. You write a book to build a foundational impact on our discussions. I think a book that has really stood the test of time and that I continue to think about as a reference point for these conversations is Margaret Atwood's book, Oryx and Crake. I don't know if you remember, but there's a game that the characters play about about extinct species and and just the relationship that humans in that novel had with their environment, with the food they were eating, with the, the DNA of the creatures that are surrounding them. I think that that has was it was once upon a time science fiction, and then it kind of became reality very slowly with none of us noticing. And and I think if people want to experience that sort of horror that that's a very good book to start with. And when we're talking about books and foundational impact, Seth, I've heard you describe that this project or the book itself in this project is like the pit of the cherry. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean about that? Cause I just think it's brilliant. Long before I met Nikki Papadopoulos, when I was a struggling author getting rejected day in and day out, my spouse came home from a hard day at work to hear that once again, I hadn't made a nickel. And she said, why don't you do something useful, like invent the pitless cherry? So the next day, when business hours rolled around, I called up the US Department of Agriculture. And they had something called the cherry desk, which were experts on cherries that you could talk to. And they connected me to the cherry desk. And the guy at the cherry desk said, "Uh, it's not hard at all to make a seedless cherry, but you can't make a pitless cherry. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, a a cherry is a droop. A droop is a kind of fruit. And droops grow around the pit. If you made one without a seed, the pit would be empty. It would be really hard to grow, but it would work. He said, but no one would notice because it would still have a pit. And if you don't have a pit, you don't have a cherry. And when we think about culture change, when we think about conversations, Sooner or later, it's a droop. Sooner or later, at its center is the core of something. And there have been really good, thoughtful books written about the climate for the last 40 years. But none of them yet have become the center. And what we're trying to do here is not replace them, but augment them to be able to say, as simply as we can, don't take our word for it, but you can look it up. Because there's a group of people who when challenged in that way, we'll look it up and we'll get the joke. And the three of us on this conversation, we get it. And if that doubles just 30 times, then everyone will get it. And then we'll be able to start having systemic action. So why are more people not thinking of books as tools? Why are they not thinking of books as the pit of the cherry and and organizing this huge collective effort around a book then? Nikki has such a frustrating job. Once a week, they bring a book to the world that everyone who's relevant should read, and people don't, because teachers and systems taught us that books in school were the same thing, and that school was bad, and that books are a pain in the neck, so we avoid them. And climate is something that people associate with being alive or not being alive. And if you show up to people and say, we need to pay attention to this, Good people, people who are smart, will look away. And they will look away because they just don't want to deal with it. And other people with guts and care, people like Jennifer and Nikki, say, show me. And 
that's how culture change works. And that's what we need. The people who are ready to look straight at this are now being exposed to what they need to see. And a lot of those people who are ready to look at this are also looking at this because they trust you, Seth, right? And I'd love to talk about trust a little bit because I think it it's really interesting with this project. Like, Nikki, why did you trust Seth in this harebrained idea? Seth, why did you trust us, this collective, to even create this thing and the whole theme of how? How did we manage to do this is what I'm trying to say. Well, I just want to insert one thing first because you didn't ask about it. The way I work with Nikki Papadopoulos is I have a blank check that I have offered her. If she wants me to change the title of a book, I do. If she says something is going to happen, I believe her. That trusting Nikki and Adrian is a foundational principle of my ability to do this work. And we wouldn't be talking if that wasn't true. So the fact that Nikki believed that we would pull this off means everything to me. Nikki, why did you believe we could pull this off? Because I have seen Seth lead something before. And by lead, I don't mean boss, you know, going around telling people what to do and when to do it. I mean, creating a community where people could participate with each other to get extraordinary things done. And, and I'm referring to the Alt-MBA, which is a, a program I was incredibly privileged to be a part of. I was in the first cohort and it was, it was brilliant because Seth started it and he got us all together, but then we took it off on our own. That was a bit, really big, important part of the project. It was not Seth speaks and we take notes and we go and do what he says. And so I knew that Seth would be able to create a community and empower it like that and not be sitting at the center of everything and saying, no, don't write it like that. No, don't do it like that. No, don't solve the problem that way. And that's really, it's an extraordinary thing to be able to do because if you are in charge or if you lead something or if you have a vision, it's very hard to then trust, as you say, other people with that. But I, I know from working with him that he is really able to identify um, talent and be able to empower that talent to get extraordinary things done beyond what, what he had imagined. And Seth, what about your relationship with the community? Why did you trust us? Because in the abstract, from a distance, people are hard to believe in and engage with. But up close, when we are seeing people actually seeing them, people are really good and they will dig deep. And the technology here, which is worth noting for those who are wanting to follow in our footsteps, is if anyone wanted to leave at any time, they did. And turnover was our friend. It wasn't our problem. And so it was always assumed that on any given day, the only people who would be there were people who wanted to be there. And to create a culture where we said, this isn't about who owns what. This isn't about who's writing what page. Any feedback you get will not be about you. They will be about the page. And we are all here to make this page better. Once we believed that, someone who couldn't handle it left. So all the personality problems went away because no one had power. Lots of people had responsibility. And I knew as a project manager who has never gone over budget and never missed a deadline in a thousand projects that I wasn't going to miss a deadline this time 
because there were enough people who wanted to be there that we had resilience built in. It was a non-fragile system. And has this project changed then the way you look at creating books or creating projects going forward in the future? Like, is there anything that you're going to take from this specific, the Carbon Almanac project into your next work? Either of you, really. I think just to underscore what Seth just said, it's that people are extraordinary. Um, I, I did, I did a little bit of lurking on the discourse and I was just blown away by the talent and the effort and the heart and the imagination and the fact checking. And I just, it was just really something that took my breath away. And I think it's a good reminder. Um, you know, I think when we get stressed out, especially I'm a manager, when you get stressed out or you're worried about a deliverable, your instinct is to try and control people, to kind of try and control the outcome. And so in doing that, you diminish their agency and you make them smaller and you also take away their spark and what makes them great. And the reminder that that's not how you're going to get great work out of, you know, that's not how you're going to encourage people to grow and flourish. And to me, that was just a really powerful thing. Seth, how about you? Any big learnings? Um, it's a lot less lonely. And we have a loneliness epidemic in our world. And this community, we're not good at small talk in this community. There's not a lot of time <laughs> spent discussing, believe it or not, the weather. Um, but to know that there are people next to you on the journey, the Hong Kong Cavaliers, it, you know, it, it's special. And I have long built organizations in my career and often worn myself out because I'm terrible at being a manager and a boss. I don't like the perception of power. Um, but I love being in community. And so this has been really special. And, you know, there, there's a saying in Algonquin Park during the last week of the summer, you don't start planning for next summer. You don't even start planning for tomorrow. You enjoy today. And I am uh, right now exactly where I need to be and want to be. And I am spending zero cycles thinking about what's next. This is what's next. This is the focus of every one of my days. And to do it with a group of people like you, Jennifer, who have just consistently and magically made each day better, what a privilege. There's no way, though, that this project has not come with without challenges, right? What has been the most challenging moment so far? I would say the most challenging moment is we had some hoarding at the beginning. And I had to decide if I was going to permit the hoarding to happen. Because if it, you know, we needed the eggs and the chickens were laying the eggs. So you just let the chickens lay the eggs, but you can't because it doesn't scale. It's not resilient. So we had to stop the hoarding. We had to say, you know, there are other people who can do this too, and you're going to need to let them do it with you because we are not going to wait for you. And we were at a particularly fragile part of the project, and I knew we needed to do that. And we did it, and I'm glad we did. But every day, including that day, I knew that there were the right people in the room at the right time who had everybody's back. There was less existential risk with this project than almost anyone I have ever worked on. Because 
there have been plenty of times I've been writing a book and I got to page 80 and I was like, I don't know if there's a book here, but that never happened here. And Nikki, what about you? Was there any challenges to getting buy-in for this project? What are the fun and challenging things about working in publishing is that you're always trying to take the complexity of something that is a book and to deliver it in like a sentence. And I had had a couple of early misfires in doing that where I think, you know, I get so excited about like the collaborative, I'm like, oh, like this. And then, you know, and sort of not really realizing like what people were hearing when I was talking about that. And so I can't remember the particular language, but I think figuring out how to position and talk about this book in a way that could be heard by people who were not going to take, you know, for whatever reason, like they're not going to sort of sit down and pour over every single page to figure out what it is. That was a challenge for me. And that's, you know, that's a frequent challenge in book publishing, as, as anyone will tell you. And it's one where we do spend quite a lot of time. But that that was something that I think was a little tough. Something that wasn't a challenge, but that was sort of an interesting process was the the cover process. We just looked at a lot of covers and, and the cover process forced us to have some other bigger conversations about like, what are we signaling with this book? Who is it for? Where does it live? Is it for the insiders only? Is it for the insiders to give to the less insiders? And, um, and I felt like that process, like it was never just about an image. It was about where is this book going to live in the world and how is it going to encounter its audience. And and so that was super clarifying for, for everybody, I think. One of the strengths of the book is one of its weaknesses. The book industry likes the fact that there are authors. And I was resolute in not being the author of this book, even for marketing purposes. In terms of the cover, we asked the community to help us and they came up with, I don't know, 150 designs. Again, that's not something that a typical book publisher is used to. When I came back to the group, and said, this is the cover, I was ready for there to just be an uprising because (laughs) it wasn't the cover that 149 of the people suggested. But everyone was instant in their embrace of it, and it has not let us down since. It was great work on Nikki's part to, to thread together the pieces of what we were trying to say. So what are we trying to say with the cover then? Like, who is the almanac for? We should have discussed this way back in the beginning of this episode, but who is the almanac for? You answer this question, please, Jennifer. The mic is yours. Yes. Well, it's for the people who we love that we wish understood where we are at collectively at this time, who are maybe not adverse to hearing this information, but maybe either scared or think that they can't come to the conversation because they don't have the right words to say or reluctant because of what political party they're in or whatnot. That's who I think it's for. Did I get that right? You're really close. (laughs) I don't think that we, we have to understand we're doing a bank shot here. The book is not going to be purchased by those people you just described but it will be purchased for them. And that gets back to this idea of the community. I have a blog post coming up about Paul and John, and my insistence is that neither one of them is a genius, but that together genius was created because of the relationship between Paul and John. And what's happening with this almanac is a community built it 
and a community is going to read it. And the people who get it are going to hand it to the people who need to get it. They will then hand it to the next person. And you came up, Jennifer, with the penultimate page of the book, which is that little envelope with the red string on it where you can write the name of the next person in your office who needs to get it. Because that's one of the things books are the best at, is if you put it on someone's desk, they have to touch it. They can't just leave it on their desk. So at any time in this process, did you have any real doubts that this was going to work? Did you have any real doubts that we would put out a book in a couple of months? And if so, how did you move past those? Because I mean, I would have had doubts if I were you, Seth. <laughs> what about you, Nikki? I, I feel so naive saying this, but no, I really didn't. I really, really didn't. I, I knew the kind of person who, and we were talking, Jennifer, about the moment where I saw the email, I knew the kind of person who was going to respond to that. And I knew that it would be attracting the kinds of people who would not rest until it was done even if it was hard. If there's one way I could describe the typical member of the Carbon Almanac Network, it's it's a shipper. You're all shippers. You're like, yes. And that attitude is is just replete in the discourse. I mean, it's it's the like, we're going to make this happen. It's not about what I want. It's not about, oh, I, I feel, you know, an emotional connection to this particular verb. It's like, no, 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 that's not going to work. Let's move on. Let's do this. Let's do this. What about this? And so um, I didn't have any doubts at all. Seth, did you have any doubts? Nope. You're braver than me. No, it's not about bravery. It's about experience with project management. Yeah. And understanding that if you get the politics out of the way and you work on something that's important enough, and you have discipline and rigor, it'll get done. And, you know, Lauren Michael may or may not have said Saturday Night Live doesn't go on because it's ready. It goes on because it's 1130. And some weeks it's not as good as other weeks, but it goes on at 1130. We made a commitment to each other in October that it was going to be done before the end of February. And it was. The real thing was how much better than I hoped would it be when it was done? And the answer is way, way better than I hoped. I will admit that it turned out much better than I had hoped as well. Really, I'm really impressed, especially since I was working on the infographics and the charts and all that. And we were having people who had zero design experience jump in and create those. We did a really good job. Oh my gosh. I, I will say I did not expect it to be so beautiful. When Seth sent me those first few spreads, I just thought, oh, wow. I'd, I heard charts. And I was like, okay, charts, you know, like sounds good. Maybe a few pictures. And the, the brilliance of, of having a design template that had some sort of underlying principles, but was flexible enough to accommodate different elements and could be used like that. I mean, it was just really that took my breath away a little bit, I have to say. And when Jasper and you, Jennifer, got very clear, direct feedback about what it needed to be, and both of you said, oh, sure. And then the next day it was like that. That's when we were over the hump. Because I can't redo the, the work you're doing. So we if it needs to be boring and banal, it was going to be boring and banal. And we 
did the same thing with the articles. We did the same thing with the layout. It was, we're speaking for the page now, and this page isn't good enough. Please, let's make this page better. And we established a, a vocabulary and a visual look, and the group got it. They understood it. And, you know, I'll pick an example. When Vivek showed up, I saw he had energy, but not a lot of book discipline. And the first two or three things he contributed weren't helpful. And we were clear with him about what helpful would look like. And to his credit, within 24 hours, he got the joke. And he ended up doing the first draft of at least 40 pages of this book all by himself. Because he listened and he learned and he changed. And that's exactly what we're asking the public to do. Multiple contributors have told me that they were very excited to contribute something and did so and we're all gung-ho and then had that real heavy criticism or feedback. And at first, we're really jarred by that experience and then leaned into it a bit and it really changed like how they see themselves and their work going forward. I found that really interesting. Everybody's been profoundly changed, Seth. I don't know if everyone's telling you as much as I'm hearing in, in these episodes, but people have been profoundly changed by this project. They see the world differently. They see themselves differently. They see everything books differently, marketing differently. How has this experience changed you? I've been in this industry for a very long time. And for a very long time, I was an outsider in the industry. And only recently did I become an insider. And it means a lot to me that people who I've admired for so long see that there's something useful in the work. And I have tried to open the door. And I'm guessing now there's tens of thousands of people who write differently because I'm trying to teach them how, what I've seen. But to, to do it up close and personal and to watch people get out of their own way, to dance with resistance, to ship the work, and to do it with the spirit of generosity and emotional labor, it's so gratifying. And I wish it was for a project that two weeks from now would change the culture forever. It's not. But that's okay, because this is the project we picked. And it's a building block, and we will continue to lay bricks until we make a difference. But we've already made a difference because we've already changed the lives of thousands of people. Yeah. So it multiplies. Nikki, can I hear your story? How did this project change you? It continues to change me. I think that's why I'm, I'm pausing a little bit. The model of collective action, again, I keep going back to this, but that that has really stunned me. I think, you know, again, seeing what people are capable of when you give them clear guidelines and set a clear goal and a mission on something that matters. I just, I've, I have been floored by what has come out of this community. And it's made me look at, made me look at strangers in a different way because now everybody who I meet, I'm like, Oh, are you one of them? Are you one of us? And it, it just changes the way that you relate to the world. I think because, because this is not a network of people who knew each other. This is a network of, of people from all over the world who are strangers. And, and the fact of this book is extraordinary. I mean, I just can't emphasize that enough. It keeps changing me. I think that we are planting seeds and they're going to grow in all sorts of unexpected ways. We have to get the K-pop community involved. 
You're in charge. That's who we need. Now that I think about this. And what do you hope will be the impact of this project? Like, where do you want us to be 12 months from now? My dream is that the book becomes what Seth has occasionally called the souvenir of an idea. And the idea is we need to do this together and stop greenwashing and stop making it about individual action. And let's talk about what really matters. So high in the sky, there is a lot going on outside of the book where the book is kind of an entry point into this community of people who were who were shippers, who were not about rhetoric, who were not about politics, who were about getting certain outcomes and being very pragmatic about getting those outcomes. And, and I think that that is something that has been missing in the conversation about climate change. So if, if, if we reach our goal, this community becomes a very powerful counterweight to the forces that are preventing change. Actual things are going to change because this community wants it to change because everyone in this community says one day, okay, this is the day we're all going to call this one office and they, you know, blow up the office or this is the day we're all going to visit this one website and everyone visits the website. It's just, I hope that this is the door to many other things and many other activities that are powerful and that make meaningful change. I got nothing to add here except admiration for Adrian, for Nikki, for the team around them. You don't get into the book publishing world because you want to make a big profit. You get into it because you want to make a difference. And I'm so lucky that I know the two of them. Well, that's very kind. We feel incredibly lucky to know you, Seth. And I think you're underselling yourself and your role here, not in terms of the sort of project manager of the book, but I really do think that that all of your teaching and your writing and your books have led to this other book. I think that you've always worked to empower people, to teach them how to contribute meaningfully and that their voice matters and that they have a responsibility to contribute. And I'm just really excited because this book is a culmination of all of that teaching. You've been listening to the Carbon Almanac Collective. This podcast is part of the Carbon Almanac Podcast Network. For more information, to join the movement, and to order your copy of the Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Subscribe and join us next time to get more insights from regular people mobilizing to help the world fight the climate emergency. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Carbon Connection, a rebroadcast of the Carbon Almanac Collective Podcast. We'd like to thank Jennifer Meyer Schwa, Sam Schufenecker, Leaky Tang, and Barbara Orsi for producing this episode. To listen to other episodes of The Collective and to explore other shows on the podcast network, visit thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts.